This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my extended conversation with Paolo Coelho. Honoring our guest's request, we've excised a few minutes of this interview. You can download the MP3 of our produced show with Paolo Coelho at onbeing.org. Hello, this is Krista Tippett. Hello, Krista. Yes. This is Paolo. How are you? Um, I'm good. It's lovely to have you on the other end. <laughs> it is my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm I'm just thrilled. Um, I want to hear how you say your name so that I say it correctly. Coelho, but don't worry about it. <laughs> Nobody says it correctly. Okay. Huh? Well, I'm going to worry about it a little bit. I'll do my best. <laughs> Probably if you call me Paolo, it's easy for you, no? All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for making the time for this. Um, my my honor, my honor. Yeah, I, Chris, how are we doing for? Uh, do we need to let me let me ask you just for uh, for production sake? Let me ask you some mundane question like uh, what you had for lunch. You are talking to me, right? Yes. So I never have lunch because I think we can eat only twice a day. So I have a good breakfast. And I have dinner. What did I have for breakfast? I had bread and olive oil and yogurt Mm -hmm. that here they call yaourt in French. It's very complicated. (laughs) I never get to use it to this strange word, yaourt. (laughs) Then I had uh, prunes and I had black coffee. Sounds and, good. Uh, how, how long? And you? And oh well. Oh well. I had. Um, I have started having quinoa for breakfast every morning. So I have. Good. I have quinoa and almond butter and blueberries for breakfast. I recommend okay. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> say, how how long have you lived in Geneva? I'm just curious. For this past well, I was here. F- well. Uh, I moved. Uh, I had the residence in 2006, but I moved on 2009. Oh. Have you been to Geneva before? A l- long time ago. Yes, not for a uh, while. I know it's beautiful. Uh-huh. It is beautiful because it is a village. Mm. And, and uh, like any village, you have the countryside the technician is laughing because <laughs> she knows <laughs> what I'm talking about. Uh, so we don't have any stress here. You have cows, like in the postcards that you see from Switzerland. And then you have chocolate. And then you have, uh, and you have well, the Alps, the mountains. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you should, you should not have told us that, that you live in a place where there's no stress because when people hear this interview, they'll start moving there in droves. <laughs> don't do that. Okay. No, no, no. But they have also very strict legislation here. Okay. They don't allow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's good. Honestly, good honestly they have strict. a very strict legislation. Geneva can't go beyond 143,000 uh, ah. people. Uh-huh. And if you can you can move to Switzerland, but then you have to move to another what they call canton, to another place, and also be very happy and and, and live a not very stressful life here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was watching you on TED. Oh, 
Beautiful, beautiful talk about compassion and tolerance. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Well, so, you know, thank you. Yeah. You know, where I'd like to start is um, you've written quite a lot about the religious background of your childhood as having many aspects of being punishing and joyless. But I wonder if you think about the spiritual background of your childhood, perhaps a spiritual sensibility that was forming in you even then, even if you didn't know it. Um, how, How would you think about that? Well, I didn't know very well because I was forced yeah. to believe in God. I was forced to pray. I was for. I was in a Jesuit school, yeah. and uh, so it was very difficult for me to accept God and spirituality. Because when you try to to force someone to do this, it's not the the best way to to well to open the doors of of the this unknown world mm. to someone. So, but at the end of the day, uh, the Jesuit, they, they, they taught me something very important, that it is discipline. Mm. And, and then by discipline, of course, I went through a period that I denied everything that I learned because uh, for the reasons that I, I told you. Yeah. But then now when I returned and I was already 40 years old, it was after my pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Then it was fantastic because, because it was a choice, not something that it was imposed to mm, me. Right, right. And that's, that's um, so much more a story of our time, I think, people choosing their spiritual and religious lives rather than merely inheriting them uh, in their families, which happened um, for so many centuries, really. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because for a period, for example, during the hippie times, uh, when I was a dropout and I left everything behind, I left my family, I left, I left uh, my school, I left the dreams of my parents behind because they wanted me to be an engineer. Yeah. And then, of course, I went. Uh, I was fascinated by by a different spirituality, uh, like the hippies were. So I became a little bit of everything. So I was a Buddhist. Then I was a Hare Krishna. Then I was. Uh, <laughs> right. I was a little bit of everything. So the day that I realized that uh, what is in my blood is Christianity. So, and Christianity, like any other religion. Uh, leads to the same light and the same light that every single religion on this planet leads, that it is to make you a better person and committed to to the state of the world, to your neighbor. Uh, and then, and then, of course, I returned to Christianity after the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Mm. So Christianity was your your mother tongue, your homeland. Isn't that interesting? That um, I, I, so. I mean, let's yeah. That 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 that, that was a, that you reached home <laughs> in a way. You came back home um, because of this pilgrimage. And and I want to talk to you about um, you discovering the experience of pilgrimage, the meaning of pilgrimage um, as a modern person. And then you you've introduced it to so many other modern people. Um, you walked the road of Santiago de Compostela, 500 miles. 
Had you even known about that pilgrimage? I mean, it's a very old, kind of the classic iconic pilgrimage. But was that something you also just discovered existed in the world? Yeah, I, I, I did not know about this pilgrimage till the day that I, I was, so to say, invited to do this pilgrimage by a person that I call my master. But in fact, he's more like a friend to me. Mm. Huh? Mm. So I discovered this in 86. In 1986, I went to Spain, but I was not very convinced I said, this is totally stupid to do a pilgrimage nowadays. You don't need to go back in time, uh, well, to reach your soul. Hmm. But sometimes some, some rites of passage are very, very much important. So I did not know that by then. So I did the pilgrimage. At the very beginning, I was longing for the thing to end. <laughs> so the first three days... <laughs> right. I said, my God, uh, I still have uh, 455 miles ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, this is not going to end. This is totally stupid. What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. We live in a modern world. Till, till the fourth day. And the fourth day, I start getting used to the idea of walking and talking to people, and be uh, uh, aware of my surroundings, and learning about my body, but also start learning about my soul. So when I arrived in Santiago de Compostela, it was uh, like a sad moment, because it was the end of something that was a turning point in my life, and I did not know what to do from that moment on. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. A sad moment. I mean, that's you mean that's the experience. That's how you felt at that moment. Is that what you? Yeah, mean? I thought. Yeah. Oh my, my God! The day that I'm going to arrive in Santiago de Compostela, that means also that I I, I fulfilled a task, and I can I can go back home. And mm. right be, uh, before uh, Santiago, uh, before you can see the city. There is a, a, a hill, and they, they call it Mons Gaudi in Latin. That means the Mount of Joy, meaning mm-hmm. the pilgrims, they used to go there and for the first time see the, the towers of the cathedral and, and, and be full of joy. And when I arrived in Mons Gaudi, in the Mount of Joy, I felt the sadness because... Uh-huh. Because uh, somehow uh, something so different that, that that I experienced in my life was going to end. But but what I did not know by then that it was that the real pilgrimage was about to start. Mm. Because I did a physical pilgrimage when I arrived in ah. Santiago de Compostela, I understood finally that uh, I had to make a choice in my life. And the choice would be I have to fulfill my dream or I have to forget my dream forever. My dream was to be a writer. I was 40 years old, probably too old to change my path. But I said, no, I'm going to change. I'm going to leave everything behind. I'm going to burn my bridges. I'm going to follow 
my heart from now on, even if I have a price to pay. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was supported by my family, my wife. She said, yes, let's do it, even if everybody tells us that uh, nobody can make a living out of writing, but let's take this risk, because otherwise you can have everything, but you'll be unhappy. And and so and so I started uh, by writing my first book, that it is The Pilgrimage. I, I may add something. Uh, when I did this pilgrimage in 1986, there were practically no pilgrims. The road was totally right. unknown. I learned that in your, in your writing, that this wasn't... Now it's it's something that many people do, but you're saying it wasn't at that time. No, no, it yeah. was totally unknown. I yeah. never heard about yeah. this road. No? But, uh, and I'm glad that somehow uh, my book, my first book, The Pilgrimage, that I thought that nobody's going to read because who who cares about this <laughs> strange road to Santiago? Okay. Uh uh, but in fact, people read, and people undertook this pilgrimage. Uh, uh, so I was an instrument for this road, yeah. as this road was an instrument for me for changing my life for better. And it seems to me that really just a core theme that runs through all your writing is life itself as a pilgrimage, writing as a pilgrimage for you, but also there's this effect of your work that is about reading as a pilgrimage or a way in as a step on a path to pilgrimage for modern people. So interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also do believe that we, we have this possibility of doing a pilgrimage every single day because a pilgrimage implies in meeting different people, in talking to strangers, in paying attention to the omens and uh, and basically in being open to life. And we leave our home to go to work, to go to school, uh, and we have every single day this possibility, this chance of discovering something new. So the pilgrimage is not for the privileged one who can go to Spain and to France and walk these 500 miles. Mm. But to people who 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 are open to life, I, I a pilgrimage yeah. at the end of the day is basically get rid of things that you are used and mm. try something new. It's lovely, and you know I have to say that that there's a real there's a restlessness about that, right? That that there's there's a restlessness to you, a life giving restlessness. Um, you know, um, you talk in one place about uh, the difference between being a builder or a planter, and that a planter, a gardener, is never released from the demands of the garden. And you wrote, and it's by its constant demands it makes of the gardener's life a great adventure. Um, but do you know what I mean? What you're not you're not describing a life of settling. Or of um, peacefulness in a way, maybe peacefulness no, no. in moments, no? No, no, I think that this would, this would be in contradiction with the nature, because nature is never in peace. Mm. You see mm-hmm. the winter fighting. It never against, stops, yeah. yeah. Yeah, against the summer. You see the sun exploding above my head now. 
you know. So confrontation is part of life. Sometimes I'm a little bit uh, uncomfortable with this idea that uh, uh, let's give peace a chance. Of course, when you talk about <laughs> from your hippie when you talk days, about yeah. To, yeah, when you talk about war, this is clear. Huh? Yeah, yeah, war is a negative thing. Yeah, uh, but when you talk about yourself, you have to accept your contradictions. And you have to learn how to live with, with your contradictions. Otherwise, you, you, you become a block of stone that never changes. That's why uh, being a gardener, in the metaphoric sense, is much more important than, the, than be a builder, building things that they are not going to change. They can change, but mm. the only mm. change uh, is decay. Mm. It's not something that mm. uh, you can improve Yes. So, you know, something that um, that in, has intrigued me in my life of conversation, and I, I think it seems like a, a paradox that <clears throat> that when someone is able to be most articulate, most particular, um, articulate about their life, that in those moments, what they say can be most universally heard and felt. And it seems to me that this paradox is very central to your life of writing and, and even your, you know, your success as a writer, uh, uh, the reach of your writing. Um, you've said that the question, the driving question behind all of your writing is, who am I? Who is Paolo Coelho? Um, yes, which is a very <laughs> tricky question. Right? Yeah, but it's because so interesting that that in as you pursue that question, that single-minded question, you know, as you say, the more you understand yourself, the more you will understand the world. Um, why? How do you explain that that well, paradox? I'm going paradox? to divide. I'm going to divide this uh, question okay. into two. <laughs> the first one is I saw you talking about tolerance and compassion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, which is very important. Uh, At the, my and I saw, you, I saw you saying that uh, sometimes compassion is understood like being weak yeah. and being unable to, to react. So, every morning, I find myself a different person. Uh, I'm always a mystery to myself. If I knew... Uh, in the first hours of the morning, what I'm going to do, what is going to happen, what attitude or decision should I take, I think my life would be deadly boring <laughs> because, because uh, well, what makes life interesting is the unknown. It is the risks that we take every single moment of our, our day, of a single day. So uh, I think that this contradic contradiction should be accepted. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I mean that learning how to live with our contradictions does not, does not, uh, does not uh, keep us away from being ethic and respecting our neighbor and learning about tolerance and learning about compassion. These are two very important, very important words today that were totally forgotten. Yeah. So compassion and tolerance 
we should we should emphasize the importance of these two of these two of these two words, but at the same time understand that the universe is confrontation. If you have tolerance and compassion, you can go to the battle. Battle in the metaphoric sense, sense of course, b- uh, fighting for your dreams without harming anyone. Right. So you experience and in some way embody this this reality that as we as we wrestle with our contradictions and and the hard things that life brings to each of us we we also that that those are breeding grounds of compassion towards others that that wrestling in fact becomes a breeding ground for compassion is that yeah yeah at least for me yeah. at least for me yes dancer yes yeah you know I want to ask you about the word magic. <laughs> and, you know, obviously your book that so um, that has that's been read by so many millions of people, um, with, um, The Alchemist, you know, The Alchemist, Alchemy. Um, and you've written that your pilgrimage, your original pilgrimage um, was set in motion when you were participating in a small Catholic order that included some work with benign magic. You know, you've talked about magic moments in life. Talk to me about what that word, that experience means for you. How can we understand that? It's not a very modern word, is it? No, no, it is not. Uh, uh, and sometimes very easily misunderstood, but if I can define magic, I would say that it is, it is a bridge that allows us to cross from this visible world with this invisible world mm. to this invisible world. So I'm talking to you and you can hear my voice, but behind my voice there, there are emotions. You can't see my emotions. You can grasp or have some uh, some uh, uh, sensations, uh, but emotions are something that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't uh, organize, but at the same time, emotions change the world. Hmm. And the most important one be, being love. So as as the Beatles said, all you need is love. I think that this, this summarizes very well uh, what this world needs now. Yeah. If you can make love being underst- not understood, but felt by people, huh? accepted by people, probably, I, I'm saying probably, we will forget to ask questions like the one that you mentioned, who am I? And instead of asking questions or, and trying to get answers, you, want, you will understand that you, you are a manifestation of love, and a manifestation of love cannot be understood. It can be felt. Right. And from the moment that you, you, feel, you feel sure about this, you don't feel insecure of being a manifestation of love, you are going to understand that other people are going to respect. They are not going to 
cheat you. They are not going to try to take advantage of it because they also need love. I'm not trying to be an airy-fairy guru because I'm not, you know, I'm someone in the process of learning also. But one thing that I understood is that from the moment that I was not scared of manifesting my love, I, well, my life changed and changed for better. I had my difficult moments, yes. Hmm. I was hurt, yes. I was sad, yes. But still, uh, this love that is what uh, Jesus says about the love that goes beyond the fact that I like or dislike something, hmm. this love that it is more powerful than anything else that the Greek used to a different word because eros is for just love between a man and a woman, but right. the Greek used for for just for just love that goes beyond like or dislike. They have agape. Yeah. So I'm talking about agape, the love that consumes, the love that is. Uh, uh, us and and our manifestation and agape is also more pra- practical care, right? It's not it's not just emotion; it's it's action. Absolutely, you mm. you you, you spotted. Yeah, that's the right thing to say. You know, uh, agape is action. Yeah, it's not about thinking. It's not about sit down. There are moments of exercises huh? mm-hmm. that you sit down. And you feel everything, and normally you cry. I cry. You know, uh, at these moments, I have this urge of crying, uh, but not crying for joy, not crying for sadness. No reason for crying. Crying of being amazed for mm-hmm. being alive, mm-hmm. and let us allow this this thing. Uh, to happen to us, you know, accepting and respecting the mystery. We don't need explanations for everything. Hmm. We need to fill our life with love. And as love does not have explanations, okay, let's simply enjoy. <laughs> you know, you, you, you saw that. You saw that talk I gave about how we've watered down the word compassion. And, and I think a lot about how, oh, even more so, a thousand million times more, we've watered down the word love, in, in, certainly in the English language. Um, and so, yes, you know, you say, the Beatles said all you need is love. And when you say it... Um, I, I think anyone listening, almost anyone listening, just knows intuitively that it's true. But it's also, it is one of these contradictions of being human because that is that simple statement is true. And yet in many ways, you know, for most of us, learning to love is the longest pilgrimage of all in life. And it's it's even something that many people don't achieve or can't achieve. Absolutely. And... And I don't know, why do you use uh, this word cheese? Mm, mm. You're too cheesy. Oh, do you have anything about cheese? Uh, <laughs> when you say, oh, he's being so cheesy uh, uh, <laughs> when, when you manifest uh, something that it is a true 
the most important thing of uh, uh, that we have, we become very cynical. Mm-hmm. Probably disease, disease, uh, defensive. You know, yeah, a natural defensive attitude. Because you want to love, you want to share your love, you want to show your love, but you don't want to be cheesy. <laughs> so you destroy everything. Mm. Why do you use this word cheesy, Krista? <laughs> I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> well, I said achieve, but, you, but you're right. That's the word you want that is used to be dismissive. I mean, Absolutely. You, you've also... Um, I, I love the way you talk about virtues, and um, and you, you know you talked about agape, but there's also philia. There's the Greek. There's the Greek uh, calling out the love of friendship, and I think you you that's also something that's important to you. This other, th- th- this other nuance of love. Yes, of course, eros is very important to me. Yes, yes. I I've been married uh, for thirty four years. Uh, with the same woman, but is she the same woman? I don't think so. (laughs) I think that uh, she changed a lot during this this, uh, 34 years. And when people ask me, how did you manage to get married with the same woman uh, for for so long? I I, I answer that they are wrong. Uh, She's not... The girl that I met back in yeah. 1979, she changed a lot. So did I. You can imagine in 1982, I was dreaming about about uh, being a writer uh, in 1979, sorry. Mm. And I was a person who was totally frustrated. And she, she had her dreams. And, and, and through... Out all these years, our marriage went through many moments of destruction, so to say, mm. but not destruction in the in a bad way. Uh, for example, it's like you build a house, and then you say this house does not fit me anymore. So let's reorganize, but let's continue to live here. Mm. We don't need to move mm. because. I love you and you love me. So let's let's reconstruct this house. Mm. So we've been through many ordeals, many, many, many ordeals, but we survived. Why? Because of this uh, word that you call a cheesy word, love. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm going to cheese with this cheesy thing because I'm, <laughs> I know, I'm talking I, to you. I won't be able to stop thinking about this. <laughs> I'm talking to you from Switzerland, and here cheesy is something that is considered <laughs> one of the most important things, you yeah, know, yeah. the main exportation product. Uh, so I'm going to defend uh, <laughs> the cheese itself, not as a derogative word, but something that it is positive. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I want to ask you about um, another, just really central uh, theme of your writing. Certainly, that's there in the Alchemist that has inspired so many people. Um, you know, the notion of the personal legend, um, 
And when I was getting ready to to interview you, I, I saw Will Smith, who's this you know huge American movie star and uh, cultural figure, t- talking about how he had been completely galvanized by reading The Alchemist, and he said. You know, this is what this is what he said. He took away, and it's he's really he's, it's a you know it's an absolute paraphrase of, of of what you know the things you say. There's a re- that he learned from you that there's a redemptive power to make a choice, and rather than feeling like you are an effect of the things that have happened to you, and he said, I believe I can create whatever I want to create. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw, I saw his interview. Yeah. I saw Pharaoh Williams' interview. And for, I'm, I'm going to, to use your program, Krista, to thank America because America has been so generous mm. with my work. Mm. Uh, uh, my book is at the moment of this interview uh, in the New York Times bestseller list for the Alchemist. You know, yeah. For. Three hundred and ten weeks, and I hope, I hope it will remain there for, for well, many many weeks more. But then, uh, Will Smith, Pharaoh Williams, Julia Roberts, Madonna, Bill Clinton. Well, yes, Bill there is Clinton, a list. Yes. yes, there is a list. But you know what? Let me tell you uh, something. Uh, when the Alchemist was published in America. Well, of course, a foreign author. Who is this guy with such a difficult name to pronounce? Coelho. L H O. You know, yeah. it's so complicated. So uh, I thought, my God, I should have a different name, a pen name, because I'm planning <laughs> to to be translated in many places. But then uh, nothing happened yeah. with the book. So we took three years or four years to sell the first, uh, well, 10,000 copies. And then one day I was in Portugal and I saw Bill Clinton with the book. And I said, (laughs) my God, the president of the United States of America has my book in his hand. Hmm. Uh, And then I said, no, the book is going to happen. No. Nothing happened. And then I saw I saw Madonna in Vanity Fair saying, oh, you should read The Alchemist. And I said, oh, now it's my moment in America. <laughs> Zero, nothing, you know. Huh. And then, of course, the support of many people. But I could not understand why so many people were talking about, uh, about The Alchemist and nothing was happening till the day out of the blue, I saw the book for the first week in the New York Times bestselling list. But it took uh, 15 years really? to arrive there. I did yeah. not realize that. Okay. Uh, in 91, 2001. Yeah, yeah. It took uh, 15 years. Wow. And then well, I had the chance to meet Bill Clinton when, while he was still, still uh, the American president. So... We were in a, in Davos, that it is the World Economic Forum, and uh, I got this express invitation uh, to meet the President of the United States. And then in Davos, you have this badge that tells you who you are. <laughs> so in my badge, I was written, writer. Mm-hmm. Huh? 
So, so I went to this small room with 30 people and, and, uh, and just 30 people, they have badges also. So they come to me and they said, Oh, this must be a very important person because he's here. <laughs> so they looked to my badge and they read author and they immediately walked away, you know. So I was there <laughs> in the corner with nobody paying attention to me. You weren't a CEO. <laughs> yeah, I was not a CEO. I was not a congressman. I right. was not anybody important. And then Bill Clinton arrives. And the first thing he asks is, who is Paulo Coelho? <laughs> I said, it's me, sir. I was in the corner alone, looking to the window outside, freezing snow, you know, and say, what am I doing here? It's, oh, I loved your book, The Alchemist. And I said, but Mr. President, uh, why did you read it? And he said, my daughter forced me to read, not uh-huh. only to read it, but to take a photo of the book, to promote the book. Well, it was very interesting because, you know, this is the true power of word of mouth. Yeah. It can reach your concierge, but it can reach the president of the United States yeah. and, and, and everybody else. So when my book went for the first time to the New York Times bestseller list, uh, even after so many celebrities talking about it, I would like to take uh, this opportunity uh, to thank my readers mm. in America mm-hmm. because thanks to them, uh, I am where I am. And since then, all my books make the bestseller list. You know, um, I guess the, 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 the puzzle or the, that, that arises that I want to I wanna ask you about is, you know, somebody like Bill Clinton or Will Smith or Madonna, you know, they absolutely, in a very large way, embody this idea that we all create our own lives. Um, and also this idea that's in your, in your, so much, again, in one of these central ideas that the universe is conspiring in our favor, even though we may not understand how. But in many lives, in many situations, it's very hard to make that argument. There's Right? And so how, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you think about that? Okay. Let me use myself as an example, okay. right? Yeah. So I am a Brazilian. I write in Portuguese. And uh, when I was young, uh, and I said to my parents, I want to be a writer, my parents said, no, no way. And they put me three times in a mental institution because they are trying to control me. They said that I was crazy. Etc. 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 Then you fast forward to the moment right after the pilgrimage that I wrote the pilgrimage, and then I wrote the alchemist, and uh, and uh, uh, the alchemist was published, and it did not sell at all yeah. in Brazil. So at the end of the first year, uh, well, it sold nine hundred copies, if I'm not wrong. Uh, the, the 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 first week was very exciting because I said, oh, someone in the northeastern part of Brazil bought the alchemist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's six months later, baby. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, six months later, there was a second uh, alchemist sold in the northeastern part of Brazil, and it was bought by the same person who bought the first one. <laughs> 
And my ma- my mother used to say, oh, you have a lot of friends and supporting you. I said, no, I don't know these people, you know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but uh, my publisher gave the book back to me and said, I don't want to publish this book anymore. Mm. But Krista was so convinced because at this moment, I had no choice. Either I move forward or I die. I die. I die not physically, probably, but spiritually I would die. So this sentence that you have in The Alchemist, that when you want something, the whole universe conspires to help you, I said, I have to honor my words. Hmm. I have to be an example. I have to give an example. Did I write this? I did. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to knock doors, (laughs) trying to find a second publisher. I can't just sit down and say, okay, I lost the battle. It is impossible to be a writer. So I start knocking doors. And so the circumstances, as you put in your questions, were not favorable. I was there being tested by life itself. So I knocked the door, the door opened, and and, and uh, the book had a second chance. Take in mind, take into consideration that it was not a, a manuscript that could be successful. It was a book that was already published and was not successful at all. Yeah. But I was so convinced and I had to prove to myself that I was not writing something that I don't believe, that knocking doors made all the difference. So, you know, I'd love to read um, some beautiful lines that were in your acceptance speech um, when, you were, when you entered the Brazilian Academy of Letters. You wrote, The glory of the world is transitory, and we should not measure our lives by it but by the choice we make to follow our personal legend, to believe in our utopias, and to fight for our dreams. And then you wrote, We are all protagonists of our own lives, and it is often the anonymous heroes who make the deepest mark. It's very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And it is true, because now I realize that I did not answer your question about personal legend. Uh, uh, A personal legend that it is in the book, The Alchemist, is your dream. Something that you want to do, that gives you joy, that you love, back to to love again, but also pleasure and joy. So you want to be a gardener, for example, and then you go to your parents, and your parents say, oh, gardener. First, go to the university and get a diploma. Then you can take care of your garden in your spare times. Or you want to be a writer. Or you want to be an explorer. Or you want to be whatever. Whatever, you just want to be a parent, right? I mean, there's so many dreams that are not, you know, being a movie star, but that are so essential and life-giving. I think you're saying that, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, you want yeah. to do something that yeah. uh, it is against the plans that other people have for you. Right. So there you face this very hard choice. Either, either you start 
living the dreams of someone else, meaning your parents, your wife, your husband, uh, mm-hmm. or paying the price of your dream. So this is the most hard choice that you have in life. At the very beginning of your life, when you are a teenager, you know what you want. Then you forget for a while. It happened to me. Hmm. And then you have another chance, a second chance. Life is very generous. Hmm. It always gives you a second chance. Hmm. And, uh, and then it's up to you to take, to grab this opportunity, or to forget it forever. I mean, you can't forget it forever, Krista, hmm. because there is always this inner child within yourself saying, hey, hey, I'm here. I, 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 I had a dream to be something else. And now you are making money. You have a, a house here. You have a, a penthouse there. You have whatever. But you are not doing what you were intended to do. You are not fulfilling your personal legend. Mm-hmm. That's why you see so many people Rich, famous, and then they went. They they go to through this very self-destructive uh, path right. uh, because yeah. they are doing something that uh, 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 well, they are making a lot of money, but they are not happy. Yeah. So and they are not fulfilling their dreams. And and what about people whose struggle is not that they are rich and famous, but that they are impoverished and you know, beaten down and anonymous? Well, first of all, uh, uh, I, I give you myself as an example because yeah. today everybody says, oh, you are Paulo Coelho, so it's easy to say things that yeah. the whole universe conspires. But no, no, it is always difficult. The second thing is that money or, or poverty, as you call it, yeah. uh, is not that important. Huh? I could never dream of making money out of writing. What is important is to have joy. I come from a country that's not very rich. Yeah. It's not very poor either. Yeah. But I see in the eyes of the people something that I seldom see in uh, the so-called developed countries. I see joy. Hmm. Joy of life. The French, they have this beautiful express, joie de vivre, so joy of being alive. So let's not use poverty or richness as a pattern to judge. Mm. If you want to do something, the universe is going to conspire. Look and read the, you know, you know better than I, because uh, uh, we know that we have a lot of excuses to not fulfill our personal legend, to not fulfill your dream. Yeah. We say, oh, I don't have money. Oh, I'm going to postpone, oh, which I did, yeah, by the way. I'm not yeah. criticizing anybody because I did that. Right. And then the day come and you have the worst excuse of all. You said, I'm not going to do this for the sake of my children or my husband or whatever. Then you use love as an excuse for not doing something that it is very important to you. Yeah. And that it is very important for your beloved ones. You don't ask them. 
you just take uh, for granted that if you take the risks of fulfilling a dream, they are going to starve to death. It's not true. Mm-hmm. They will be very happy to see you happy. So, because they love you. They love you. So, Krista, uh, I do believe that uh, we have no excuses for not fulfilling our personal legend. Okay. We can be poor. We can, and that story is full of, uh, of examples. No? Yeah. Yes, we yes, can yes, be yes, poor. Yes. We can be, uh, be born in a different country, whatever. But if we persevere, and this is what the Jesuits taught me, and mm. it was very important, perseverance. And if you go to Wai Ching, this Chinese book, it says, Perseverance brings good luck. So we should stop excusing ourselves for not fulfilling okay. our personal legend mm-hmm. and move ahead. I, I want to ask you about elegance, something you talk about as a virtue. We've talked, you know, we talked about the virtue of love and friendship and boldness, but very drawn to your use of the word elegance. Talk to me about the place of elegance in life's pilgrimage. Elegance is simplicity. Mm. Mm. I believe that we need to be elegant because people confound elegance with fashion. And it has nothing to do. I learned about elegance not because I was reading about fashion, blah, 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 because one day I was in Japan and I saw this totally empty house. Uh, I don't know. You've been to Japan? Uh, I have not. I have not. Not yet. Okay. So, anyway, they have these empty places. And then they have a small detail, like a, a flower arrangement or a painting. Yeah. And the rest is empty. And I said, oh, my God, what is this? This guy, it was my publisher, no? yeah. who had a Rodin, a, a, a statue of a very famous, very famous French sculptor, a sculptor in his garden. He had this empty place, and I said, for, because for us, richness is also associated with toys and toys and toys and toys. But yeah, he had yeah. this empty place. And uh, and uh, a beautiful flower arrangement that they call it origama. So I said, "What is this?" And he said, "I will never forget." He said, "This is elegance." I said, "Elegance." <laughs> he said, "Yes, because here there is only one detail that you can pay attention, mm. and mm. because of this elegance." is to get rid of all the superfluous things and focus in the most beautiful one. In this case, it was this flower arrangement. So for me, when I look to the mountains, to the Alps here in Switzerland, and I see this white snow, and I said, oh my God, God could have created... Uh, uh, snow as a rainbow, you know, full of colors. But then this would be a disaster. 
<laughs> you know, because the beauty of the snow is because it has only one color. Mm. The beautiful the desert that I, I love desert, by the way. Yeah. I spent forty days in the Mojave Desert mm. back in nineteen eighty nine, and. Uh, it was so magical, so magical, so magical. So every time that I travel, I, I, I visit the desert. But then back to elegance. Elegance is that, is to go to the core of beauty. Mm. And the core of beauty is simplicity. Mm, mm, lovely. Oh, this is such a beautiful, nourishing conversation. I, I, I'm so grateful for your time. I just want to ask you just two more questions. Um, and this is uh, you've said that um, that one way you have of meditating is archery, <laughs> bows and arrows. Yeah. Tell me about that. So I'm not, Krista, uh, this person who sits in a lotus position. I did that a lot, huh? mm-hmm. but uh, uh, and say, um, I can't do this. <laughs> you know, I'm much more like a warrior than like a wise man. Mm. So I thought, my God, it's so difficult for me to meditate, to meditate uh, sitting and try not to think. It is against nature for me, my nature, because I'm, I'm more like a warrior of the light. So one day I learned about archery, not the archery, the normal archery, but a kind of meditation called kyudo, also Japanese art. Yeah that you only have eight steps, eight movements. Huh? In yoga, I don't know how many movements you have, but in, in, in Kyudo, you have eight movements that I'm not going to describe because it's, it's, it's simple, but anyway, yeah. you have to, to, to watch it. So at the end, you open your arm and you have this tension, 43 pounds. You know, it's like... Uh, you have a, lug- a luggage of 43 pounds in horizontal. You know? mm. uh, and then you release the string and the arrow goes and immediately you are in a state of total relax. <laughs> so this const- contrast between total tension and total relaxing, you can see the universe through your bow. Mm. So, uh, from the moment that I learned archery, uh, I decided this is my way to meditate. And I I really encourage people at least to try, because it is beautiful, it is elegant, Mm. (laughs) and helps you to meditate. You know, it also, the way you describe that also reminds me of something you said that I loved when when we first began to speak about about the process of pilgrimage, that it was in discovering your body that you discovered your soul. The same thing happens with archery. You're yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the same thing because you see the tension in your body, and then you see the tension disappearing, and and you you you, you are in this state of grace and communion. Mm. You are totally right. Mm. Yes. Mm. So. Um, you, this question that we talked about is the driving question behind your writing. Who am I? Um, the 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 human question. What you know? It's your version of the question of what does it mean to be human. I'm I'm curious about 
how if you if you had to think about it, how your understanding your sense of that what it means to be human has evolved across all these experiences of your lifetime and your your lifetime of writing Okay, Krista, so you said you had two more questions. This is the final question. I have to give an intelligent answer. <laughs> so, so uh, to be totally honest, I don't know who I am. And I don't think people ever will know who they are. We have to be humble enough to learn to live with this mysterious question. Who am I? So I am a mystery to myself. I am someone who is in in this pilgrimage from the moment that I was born to the day that will come that I'm going to die. And this is something that I can't avoid. Whether I like it or not, I'm going to die. So what I have to do is to honor this pilgrimage. Through true life, and so I am just pilgrim. If I can somehow answer your question, who is constantly amazed by by this journey, who is learning a new thing every single day, but who is not accumulating knowledge, because then it becomes a very heavy burden in your back. Uh, I am this person who is proud to be a pilgrim and who is trying to honor his journey. Paulo Coelho, thank you so much. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, and I can't wait to share your voice um, with my listeners. Thank you very much, Krista. Um, and if, you ever, if I go to U.S., where are you based, We Krista? We are in Minnesota. And we would okay. oh, yeah, yeah. be thrilled to welcome you. to. We have a beautiful studio here. And if you came to Minnesota, yeah. we could gather some people. We would have a dinner for you. I would love to welcome you here. I, I read that you're in Minnesota. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so next time, probably by the end of the year, I'm planning to go to U.S. Yeah. Not to promote books, but to enjoy U.S. Absolutely. No? Please come here. And uh, and if you ever come to Geneva, I would love yeah. to meet you. Yeah, all right. So listen, my, my, my producer, Lily, across the, the glass, do you, do you have a minute for another question? Of course, she's of a, course. She's, she wants him. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> D- did you hear those questions? No, 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 right. no, no. Uh, yeah, okay. Lily, there is a match between <laughs> Switzerland and Argentina, <laughs> and then there is USA <laughs> also play tonight. <laughs> well, Don't just... be naughty. <laughs> You know, I have to say, Lily's Colombian. Lily's Colombian, so she's very okay, engaged. Yeah. So Colombia <laughs> is going to totally, play Brazil into this from now. Yeah. I, I hope Colombia wins. She's completely involved. Let me just, just this question would be, I'd love to have this. Did, did, did your parents ever accept you as a writer? Did they honor that? My parents did not accept me as a writer. Mm-hmm. On the opposite. They were desperate. <sighs> they, my parent was an engineer. And then, and then he had uh, his dreams for me, 
which I did not uh, uh, decided to fulfill. So he thought first to convince me, then to blackmail me, and finally when he, said, he saw that nothing was working, he put me on a mental institution mm. uh, because he thought I was crazy. He did this out of love, mm. uh, not out of trying to harm me or to cause me any harm. So I had, but this is a very important thing in, in everybody's life, is this sacred frame of rebellion. Uh, when you're young, you mm. learn how to, how to defend your values. Yeah, right. I have a 16-year-old son who I'm experiencing that right now. So okay. interesting. Be, it's fascinating. I mean, it's be tough. Be yeah. tough. Well, so so he can react. Yeah, yeah. right. That's and right. Hurt you back. Yeah. Hit you back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. But did your parents live to see the success of the alchemist, or the, did they did they experience that? Uh, my parents did uh, live to see the success mm-hmm. in Brazil. That it was yeah. gigantic. And then uh, abroad also, but I don't think they realize. They realize even for me it's very difficult to realize. I, I go to the street and uh, and then uh, someone come to me and say, "Oh, you're Paulo Coelho," and blah. Then I, I feel very honored, but I don't realize it's impossible yeah. Yeah. because I sold uh, I sold one hundred and seventy five million copies. That means. All, all books considering, right? Yeah, yeah. That means uh, close to 500 million readers. So it is an abstraction. Yeah, you yeah. can think about five big. people in your din- the, uh, having dinner with you and you think it's too crowded. But <laughs> when you go to, to five million, 500 million people, it becomes an abstraction. Yeah. Well, again, um, it's been such a pleasure, and I do hope we meet, um, and I'd like to try to make that happen one of these days, and, and we'll let you know. I, I, I think we're going to put this on the air this summer, and, and we'll, we'll give you lots of advance notice, and I'm just very grateful to, um, to have had this conversation, so thank you. Thanks for Thank you very doing. much, Krista. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. It was a pleasure for me. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good luck to you, Ash, tonight. Thank you. <laughs> <All right. I'll>, Ciao. <laughs> Lily's listening. Bye. <laughs> okay. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs>